This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This, of course, is Matt Splained. He's still on vacation this week, um, so I'm sure you can expect a sheep update somewhere along the show, along with, um, well, after last week's stories about cockroaches and salt cola, the sheep are probably the only thing that we, uh, we probably can expect, right? Well, I do like to, you know exceed people's expectations um and (laughs) we've had a a few weeks without talking about ai uh which means this week that we have a lot of ai Um, i was thinking maybe not all of it but i think pretty much today is going to be all of it um i i guess you know depends on how many inane questions you insist on asking me Wow. Uh, you're the one that gives me these questions most of the time to ask. Well, I'm not going to let the listeners know you're smarter than me. I mean, I'm dumb, but I'm not that stupid. Um, so, um, AI, um, there's so much this week. I think we might have to call this artificial weird science. Um, AWS. Although that sounds familiar to me for some reason. Well, yeah, it does indeed, yes. Uh, Amazon Web Services, perhaps. Um, Something I'm all too familiar with. Okay, um, well, I might have to sue them then because I want artificial weird science, so I'm sure I'll win (laughs) in a patent dispute. Uh, Anyway, sheep update. Um, Actually, the sheep are all gone. And uh, that's, well, that's the problem with being a demagogue. One day the sheep will love you. The next you ask them to form a human pyramid and they think you're mad. Um, So that's sheep out of the way. But the biggest news of the week, and this is non-AI news, is that John Wick 5 is currently in uh, development. Uh So um, even though John Wick 4 seemed to put a line under the uh, film series, um... Uh, in a recent earnings call, the owners Lionsgate, they mentioned that the fifth movie is already underway. So we don't know at the moment if uh, Keanu is involved or not. Um, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched it, eh, he might have survived the last movie. He or definitely I'm thinking, survived the last movie. Of course he did. But but I'm hoping that maybe they'll do a Gemini man on him and we'll get young <laughs> Keanu facing oh, off against oh, no. his own bullet-ridden body. Um, <laughs> you know, there's already a couple of John Wick fran- uh, spin-offs in the works. So we've got mm. the ballerina movie coming, the TV series Continental, which stars Mel Gibson for reasons known only to i don't know um Uh but i'm thinking you know everyone has these extended universes do you think we should start thinking about a matsplained extended universe um can i get back to you on that okay i mean i mostly want to do it because the initials meu would be pronounced mu um, and people would ask me what i do for a living and i could accurately say to them i'm you oh dear Oh, dear. Uh, okay, enough. Can we have a proper story, please? I mean, I don't want any any sheep, um, n- no movies, uh, and definitely no more mewing. Come on. Do you know that that constitutes hate speech, don't you? Well- um, <laughs> talking of which, um, 
Okay, there was a, another open letter from uh, AI experts this week, uh, again, including uh, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI. But this time, uh, unlike the statement that was put out a mm, couple of months ago, yeah. this was very short. So this was 22 words, very pithy, straight to the point. Uh, it reads, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. Ooh. Now, yeah, you can't really argue with a statement like that, although equally you could make that statement about anything you don't like. So, for example, mitigating the risk of extinction from sweet corn should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. So, you know, it's a fairly multi-purpose statement. Mm, mm. Obviously, we all want a world that's safe. AI falls into that bucket of things that um, certainly we need to increase our levels of protection against. Uh, the statement was issued by a nonprofit called the Center for AI Safety. And okay. co-signatories include uh, Google DeepMind CEO, Demis Hassabis, as well as the godfather of AI, Professor Jeffrey Hinton. Uh, we spoke about him on the show a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, so why would they issue a, a tweet-worthy statement? Well, you know, we don't know for sure, but one of the theories, I think I read this on The Verge, is that that statement that came out a few weeks ago recommending a six-month pause uh, in mm -hmm. AI development was seen by a lot of people as being ambiguous. And there was disagreement about the next steps and who would be the gatekeepers of those next steps, if you like. So the idea, I think, here is to have a short, simple statement that shows unity. It shows that figures across the industry are concerned about the hows and whys of AI development, its use and its implementation, but without getting into the weeds of which ideas or whose ideas should be the ones that come in and solve the problems. I mean, this is probably going to sound like a stuck record. And for those people who are listening and don't know what a record is, it's a piece of vinyl that has not... Anyway, um, how worried <laughs> should we be well, I mean, AI definitely poses a greater risk to humanity than sweet corn. But, you know, I could be wrong about that. For all mm. I know, right this moment, a sweet corn mold is permeating our lungs and turning us all into servants of its corn cobby will. So I'm not going to rehash the we need legislation and international cooperation and agreement shtick because, you know, we've said that before. But I think as some of the next few stories will illustrate, we're already normalizing the use of AI without having mm. any clear indication of its impact. Right. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, I'm joking about um, the, the, the sweet corn, but people get really alarmed about things like gene-modified food, despite the fact that we've been manipulating plant genes by splicing and other methods for thousands of years. I mean, our food staples, rice, wheat, corn, potatoes – They've only become staples because we have domesticated them. We've created strains with better yields. Mm. They're wild cousins. You know, they're not that nutritious. They don't grow that well. And we only have what we have because we have played with those genes over yeah. thousands yeah. of years. Whereas with AI, uh, something I think we should be approaching as though it's 
a feral cat maybe, we treat it like the friendly dog next door. We know that there's a possibility it might bite us, but it's so cute that we have to hug it. Um, obviously, I don't hug dogs, by the way. I'd rather cuddle that feral cat. I'll say it now. Mew. Well, yeah, that's why we need an extended universe for for this show, um, just so that we can mew on command. Mew. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one of the um, one of the signatories to the statement, uh, Joshua Bengio. Um, basically, there are three so-called godfathers of AI. So there's Professor Hinton, uh, there's this guy Joshua Bengio, and of course Jan LeCun, who I think is over at Facebook currently. Um, and what we're hearing from these godfathers of AI is actually quite sad. So in an interview uh, with the BBC this week, Professor Bengio said. His work on AI is basically what's given his life purpose. Mm. But now he feels lost, um, you know, because he he's not sure of where the thing he's helped to create is actually heading. So he's behind these calls for greater regulation, uh, or he's, you know, I mean, he's not the one pushing it specifically, but he wants greater regulation. Uh, also for controls to prevent AI being used for military purposes, as well as calling for people working in the field to receive ethical training. And I can understand where he's coming from, but we're already at that genie out of the bottle phase. Yeah. You know, bad actors aren't going to do that. So we're in this situation where we're already in that that preemptive escalation that we saw in the Cold War developing ever more powerful nuclear weapons because we fear that some enemy, whoever or whatever that enemy is, is building systems that will be more powerful than our own. Mm. So we build ever more powerful defensive systems. And of course, defensive systems are also offensive systems. So governments are not going to, I think, back these calls to, to pause AI development because they want the companies, the AI companies, in their nations to forge ahead. They want to achieve or maintain that competitive advantage because when mm. you develop for civilian purposes in this arena, that technology can also be used for military purposes. So yeah. we are already in you know, a bit of a pickle. Uh, Elon Musk, I think, was quoted at a recent Wall Street Journal-hosted event that although there's very little chance that AI might want to annihilate us, it might want to govern us under very strict controls. Why did you stop there? So that people can come to their own conclusion about Elon Musk talking about the strict controls of others. Uh, um, I see. Yeah, got it. So um, not in any way related, but there's a fascinating story on uh, Wired.com about uh, ChatGPT and its growing use by individuals with autism. Uh, I'll outline it here, but for more detail, do check out the full piece um, titled, For Some Autistic People, ChatGPT is a Lifeline. Hmm. And it's something that's so simple and it hadn't occurred to me. You know, often we find our, our interactions with AI chatbots a little bit unsatisfying because they don't understand nuance, they don't understand context. But for a lot of people with autism, they already struggled to grasp nuance and uh, the emotional content of speech with, you know, neurotypical people. Would you consider yourself neurotypical? 
I don't think I'm on the spectrum, but I think my brain is probably wired a little bit differently. Um, but if we go back to the point, you know, bots like chat GPT react to the words you type. They don't mm. care about body language. They don't care about emotion. And that can be refreshing for someone with autism, somebody who might find themselves uh, without a support network, or they might find themselves, you know, just going to college or somewhere where they're essentially alone amongst large groups of neurotypical people. Uh, and with the chatbots, there's no emotionally demanding social pretense or masking, uh, as I think it's referred to in the wired piece. And some of the respondents wired spoke to said that the tool was useful in uh, helping them. Uh, so these are people with autism. They said it was mm. useful in helping them to game or plan scenarios to use with neurotypical people. So right. to give social situations and say, you know, somebody says they're not feeling well today, how do I respond? Mm -hmm. um, so it just helps them to express their feelings in a discussion, but also in arguments where um, people with autism might just simply back down rather than wanting to become confrontational with people mm -hmm. who seem to be more animated or excited. Is there any evidence that models like this could be used for um, therapeutic purposes? Well, this is that wider issue, I guess, and it's to that point of normalization I made earlier. So none of the therapists or researchers that Wired spoke to could offer an opinion because the technology is so new. There isn't mm. any research, let alone any data for them to, to base that opinion on. Certainly, we know there are risks. Uh, there was the suicide earlier this year of, uh, I think, a Belgian man um, who was supported uh, or reinforced uh, in his wish to, to end his life by the chatbot he was talking to. Uh, and not only that, there's the enormous risk of the machine just being plain wrong, uh, yeah. just giving you the wrong information, that issue of not understanding uh, by people. Again, normalization, this issue that we don't understand that the machine doesn't care or understand, that it can't care or understand. So there are some purpose-built therapy bots um, like Wobot, but those offer, you know, kind of canned answers. Mm. And there's a good reason for that because if they detect someone who is at risk of harming themselves or others, you know, the, the response is to give them contact details for support services. It's mm -hmm. not to get deep into the weeds with them. It's to say, you need immediate medical help. Mm. So ChatGPT and most of the other current conversational bots don't have anything like that built in. Mm. And this comes back to you know the language we use for AI to describe AI. AI doesn't help us. It can assist us, but equally it might not, but it doesn't help. And I know that's being pedantic, but these are all reasons why we can't simply normalize AI at this point. These are machines. As I said, they don't care. They'll advise you to take one pill for your headache with the same apparent level of reasoning and casual conviction as they will to take 30 of the same pills. Mm -hmm. Because to the machine, there's no difference. It's so, you know, it's this is the, the kind of same advice that the therapist that uh, wired spoke to offer as well. 
if you want to use these machines, do your best to try and understand them. Understand what the limits of them are, read the terms of service, uh, and especially the disclaimers about giving you wrong answers, bad information. Yeah. Because for the most part, these are still experimental machines. And as we've said on the show before, the experiment is on us. Mm. So if you understand that, then fine, you know, play away, approach with caution. But if you find the concepts hard to grasp, if you find the idea of the machines showing apparent concern or care, but not having the ability to really know that, I would say, you know, approach with a lot more caution or even stay away from these machines for the time being. Well, I don't know what's happened, but that's some potentially good advice for once. Um, when we come back, the worrying idea of baby language models and more from the current case files of AI. Oh dear. We're right back after these messages here on Matt's Plane on BFM 89.9. Begin Fun Moments. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. I'm Rich Bradbury, and we are talking about AI this morning on Matt's Plane. Uh, Matt's status as a real boy is yet to be confirmed, Matt. Well, researchers have been trying to model a chatbot on my brain, um, but so far every prompt or conversational query uh, leads you one step further towards the ultimate answer, genocide. And I keep telling them that it's a feature and not a flaw, um, but they say it's unmarketable unmark unless I've retrained my brain. Um, so on that point, before the break, we touched on the potential for AI to be used for therapeutic purposes. And I mentioned mm. uh, uh, Wobot, a mental health chatbot that became very popular during the pandemic lockdowns. And I was saying that its responses were very limited. So this links to the next story. This is from the uh, New York Times, and it's about uh, an, kind of a new emerging trend in AI development, which is baby language models. I'm a little bit worried where this might go uh, when you're talking about a topic like this. We have well, to tread very carefully here, I feel. Once, for once I'm innocent, this isn't a story about stuffing shredded babies into computers. Um, See? I, See? I, I know. Well, I think we talked about that last week, or was it just baby farms? I mean, I can't really remember. But anyway, as I said last week, message me on LinkedIn and we can talk terms. <laughs> a few million, it's all it's going to take. Um, no, these baby language models are actually a reaction to large language models. This idea that more data is better. The more data you have, the better the model is going to be. Uh, this is one of the reasons that people have this fear about these LLMs and this idea of black boxes, because we don't know what the machine knows. We don't know mm. how it processes that information. We don't know how it uses that data. Mm. So the baby language model is part of an effort to create 
functional language models. Uh, and it kind of makes sense because when you think about all the words there are in any given language versus the number of words we actually use on a day-to-day -day basis, we all use variations of functional language models. So yeah. the thinking is, yeah, exactly. So the thinking is that we can create models that can converse and solve specific problems or assist on a specific task more effectively and efficiently if the model is customized and specialized. Is there also a commercial aspect to creating smaller models? Yeah, very much so. So the bigger the model is, the more processing power it takes to train and query. Right. So the cost of doing that quickly puts it outside the realm of most organizations to develop. So that leaves the future of this kind of AI very much in the hands of big technology. Yeah. So the baby LM challenge... Uh, is being organized by a guy called Aaron Mueller at Johns Hopkins University in the US. And the idea is to, as I said, create these smaller, more accessible AI systems that can converse more effectively and efficiently. Uh, I mean, it, you know, I, I, I think this is actually another story that we'll come back to because I find this idea fascinating. Mm. The idea that we turn the concept on its head and build smaller smaller models. If you want to read the piece on New York Times, it's titled The Race to Make AI Smaller and Smarter. Shame they haven't made you any uh, smaller. Yeah, and, you know, why segue in a show when you can just insult? <laughs> exactly, um, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> NVIDIA uh, demoed a new system um, for uh, creating... Um, uh, natural language in games at the recent Computex event in Taiwan. Uh, the system allows players to converse with non-playable characters inside games just using natural speech. So the demo that NVIDIA shows, the, the non-playable character, the NPC's responses, they're not particularly mind-blowing. Uh, again, sort of canned responses. But that's not the point because NVIDIA doesn't make games. Uh, mm. NVIDIA makes the tools that allow developers to make games. Mm. So how the developers use these new possibilities is going to be what's really exciting. Uh, the suite of tools called uh, NVIDIA ACE, so Avatar Cloud Engine for games, can run locally as well as from the cloud. And it contains tools for using language models, uh, speech to text and text to speech, along, uh, among other stuff. Now, the demo uh, has been rendered in Unreal Engine, um, which itself contains really exciting possibilities for you know, hyper detailed on-demand generation uh, within games. But I do wonder if this could be one of those developments that pushes us towards truly interactive entertainment, you know, where movies and TV shows blur with games and allow each viewer to plot their own path through them. You know, there's a lot of really, really cool potential there. You could, of course, you know, watch the vanilla movie or show the way the makers intended, but then mm. you could go back and play it your way, take on the role of a character, turn heroes into villains, mm. um, I read this story, I think, on the on the Verge, and the writer did seem a bit underwhelmed by the quality of the dialogue, as I said. Um, but fair enough, that will change depending on what language model it's hooked up to and how it's trained 
within you know that that world that is the particular game mm. and of course as i mentioned it's game makers and content creators who are going to push the capabilities of this technology um so that could even be the next step in the mew a playable map bot oh you see that scares me even more than the idea of elon musk's ai apocalypse Told you before, the Matrix is real. Um, oh. You're all non-playable <laughs> characters in the simulation that is my life, which is why I'm recording this sitting on a cloud made of cotton candy. I'm just going to keel over and die mewing to myself. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> I think that's what you have to do. Um, you know, even though you are all NPCs and the world is only as real as I decide it has to be, I can't uh, ignore the ongoing environmental impact of AI. Mm. So we touched on the amount of processing power that LLMs require compared to, say, those baby uh, baby LMs, which are typically around a a ten-thousandth of the size of large language models. So obviously, that's one route to a less power-hungry world of AI. But do we know how much energy it actually takes to, to power these systems and these machines? Oh, sorry. I, I thought that was a rhetorical question. Uh, I mean, you can tell me the answer if you know. Um, but well, I, um, I, no, no, exactly. I, I didn't know, other than it's a lot, hence telling this story. Um, because it's so hard to estimate, um, you know, many of the companies that develop AI, they don't publish specific energy use stats. Different models operate in different ways. So their training and processing consumes different amounts of energy. So Mm. there's an interesting piece on uh, Gizmodo, I think, called Is Generative AI Bad for the Environment? And that quotes estimates for GP3, uh, which they they estimate consumed around 1.29 megawatt hours of electricity and generated around 552 tons of CO2. Now, that's equivalent uh, apparently to the annual output of uh, 123 cars. I nearly said cats. I don't know what the annual output of 123 cats would be. Um, But anyway, uh, that would be, um, I mean, those figures were before GPT-3 was made public. Mm. Um, So that's without all of the the kind of public queries and and whatever. So odds on that chat GPT consumes a lot more. And there's likely been an exponential increase since chat GPT was integrated with Bing and models like Bard and Ernie. I think it's called, were launched. Yeah, uh, and like I said, those figures are only likely to uh, increase. Mm. Um, It's not all start news because search, which we've been using for the past couple of decades, already has a very high carbon footprint. Mm. Uh, AI, because it produces that human-like response to a query, is probably going to largely replace search. Now, we don't know yet how much of an offset replacing search with AI will actually be, but the Gizmodo piece mentions using, um, you know, that there are there's a lot of things we can do. We can use uh, architecture that is more energy efficient. So the systems that we're actually running the AI from can be more efficient. We can use uh, greener data centers, Uh, ones that are powered by renewables rather than fossil fuels. Um, And because we can shift 
the way we use those data centers around the world, the data centers could be used during, you know, off peak energy time. So we're just moving, you know, the, the, the queries from location to location. Um, but it really all comes back to the point that we've made time and time and again when it comes to AI. The laws weren't waiting in place. We could have mm. had, you know, guidelines for AI use, and that could have included energy consumption requirements. It's a lot harder and often a lot more costly to try and do all of this retrospectively. And that's where you get, you know, the corporate lobbying jumping in and saying, well, no, we can't take these models offline. It's going to cost this much to retool them. So can you give us a, a decade to adhere to the new guidelines? By which time, you know, search has gone from, it's gone from search to AI, AI's already gone to something else. But what we can do right now is uh, pressure companies to publish the carbon footprint of their models and, you know, as consumers, choose models that have less of a footprint that are somewhat greener. Be honest. Do you see that as, as a reality? Personally, no. You know, most of us choose the one that's best within, you know, the 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 price that we want to pay. Right, and especially right. as a lot of these tools are currently nominally free. Hmm. So you might need legislation to impose, say, a, a punitive tax on the high energy or the highest energy consuming models. Hmm. But again, that just, you know, that <laughs> you can use price diversity as a, a control or a signal. Um, a lot of people will opt for, you know, the cheaper or the free models that still pretty much do the job they want them to do. But then you're also creating these barriers in the market. You're creating those first class and second class hierarchies of access to the tools as well. So, you know, there's there's no there's no really good solution here. Okay, ruminate with me a moment then. Are the baby LMs a solution? Would a world full of baby LMs be more or less efficient than a handful of dominant LLMs? Well, I mean, that's one of the things that makes talking about the emergence of AI so interesting. You know, mm. how many baby LMs equals one large language model in terms of energy consumption? Also, how many baby language models are we likely to see? The mm. answer to all of these things is that Again, we don't know. Um, look at the the interactive entertainment possibilities of the NVIDIA ACE tools that we just talked about. Right. It would be so cool to be John Wick and pilot your path through one of his films, you know, something that's part game, part movie. But what would that cost in energy terms? So, I mean, I, I, I did <laughs> some uh, back of my back of my type into Google calculations. And um, <laughs> John Wick has taken over $400 million at the box office. And if you right. look at the average uh, in the US anyway of uh, $12 a movie ticket, that means over 35 million people watched the movie. So imagine the energy requirements of 35 million custom iterations of that movie. You know, the, the more you wander into the weeds of AI, the more complicated and interwoven all these pictures become. Mm. And that goes back to that point, partly because we didn't do the prep. We didn't create a world that was ready for AI. And 
you know, that brings us back full circle to where we started that 22 word statement. This is a technology with so much potential and that technology is good, but it's also bad. But it's a technology that a lot of its creators are already starting to to fear. They're starting to reference it in the same terms of the atom bomb. And one of the differentiators here is that, you know, we had the horrors of what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki to remind us why we should never use those weapons again. And you wonder if it's going to take some kind of disaster to, to wake people up to the dangers as well as that potential and opportunity of artificial intelligence. Oh, well, well. Um, Sorry, not a cheerful note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Matt. Anyway, um, yeah, okay. If you missed any part of uh, this show, definitely recommend having a list of the podcast. Of course, it's available um via our app which is available on the apple app store or google play you can follow matt on all of his socials it is culture matt and of course you can subscribe to his Substack newsletter that's at culturepop.substack.com thank you very much for joining us this week matt enjoy the rest of your holiday thank you so much i've got some sheep to find <laughs> we'll be back of course same time same place next week for matt splained here on bfm 89.9 listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.